Well, if you have your Bible uh, with you this morning, let's turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22 this morning. And again, uh, we welcome those of you who are visiting with us. We're very glad to have you. Hope you feel encouraged and blessed as you worship the Lord with us this morning. Congregation, make sure you make them feel at home after the service is over. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 23, is going to be our text for this morning. We'll hit the pause button on our study of Hebrews and want to look at a passage where Jesus is confronting the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to pick up our account here at verse 23. Let's pray together and then we'll read. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and thank you for the Gospels that record these interactions, uh, Lord, with the people of Jesus' day. Now, Lord, please instruct us too, and may the Spirit be poured out abundantly. If there's anyone, Lord, who needs to know the Savior this morning, even for the very first time, we pray that your Spirit will be working in their life, and that, Lord, they would come to know Jesus as the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 22, verse 23, we read the following together. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, quote, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, His brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. And having no children left, his uh, wife, excuse me, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven Will she be? For they all had married her. Verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Amen. You know, you could go through grocery stores or convenience stores, and one of the things that you'll see in the aisles, and in the especially in the um, the little section that what you might call the impulse buy section, right there as you're waiting in line, often there are uh, magazines, and magazines often uh, about telling about how you can you know get your body in better shape, um, how you can uh, I- improve. Uh, your your body or your appearance or your hair or you know your makeup or, or whatever, and our culture has something of an obsession. Not it's not new to our culture, but 
Um, you, you can make the argument the Greeks also had a, a similar obsession. But, um, you know, you, you see these things, and, and we focus on the body. Um, but I've often thought that um, as a pastor, you know, if, if I was to uh, make an appeal to our culture who has this interest in the body, I'd say, you know, you know, we as a, as a church, we can do more for your body than, than 20 years of free gym membership. And the reason for that is because I'm speaking here about the resurrection. You see, G, uh, Paul did say that, that physical exercise is of some profit, he said. But godliness was profitable, he said, forever. And that is that no matter how much time you spend in the gym from now to the rest of your life, it's not going to in any way reverse the inevitable. The Bible says that because of sin, death has come into the world, and the precursor of that is the weakening of our outer man. Our body grows weaker with time, with age, and no amount of physical fitness can reverse it. But Jesus can, and Jesus already has in the resurrection from the dead. Now, today's lesson is about the resurrection, and it comes here from this uh, account of the Sadducees and the Pharisees confronting our Savior. And the first thing we're going to look at in verses 23 to 28 is the question that the Sadducees pose to Jesus. Verses 23 to 28, the question that the Sadducees pose to Jesus. Then secondly, we're going to consider... Jesus' introductory answer and response in verses 29 and 30, particularly with regard to the issue of marriage. And then finally, in verses 31 to 32, Jesus' second response with regard to the issue of the resurrection. So we're going to look at the Sadducees' question, then we're going to look at Jesus' answer in two parts as we consider this subject here. Now look at verse 23 with me in your Bible. It says here, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. Now note here that Matthew gives us a little bit of foreshadowing here. Notice that Matthew tells us parenthetically that this group of religious teachers and leaders, the Sadducees, say that there is no resurrection. I think that is setting the table, if you will. Now, the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders uh, in Israel in that day. And they were what we might call the mainline liberals of their day. Spurgeon called them the broad churchmen. Now, why do we say that? Well, because the Sadducees kind of um, were liberal in that they denied certain Biblical truths. Um, this is not new with the 20 and 21st century. It goes back even to Jesus' day. The Sadducees did not indeed believe in the resurrection that the Bible taught. We just sang Psalm 16, uh, where we see that David said that the godly servant's body would not undergo decay. And we know that that applied to Jesus. But the Sadducees also, they had other doctrines too that were 
liberal. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They also did not believe, we know from the scriptures, they denied the existence of angels. So they, they were what we might call liberals of their day. Um, they didn't want to do away with religion entirely, but they were not on the conservative side. Okay? They were not where the Pharisees were. And this is why there was this division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were kind of the conservative party, and the Sadducees were the progressive party here. So they thought that they would pose a question to Jesus about the resurrection. Now, it wasn't a question of one seeking information, but it was a question geared towards trying to score points against Jesus Christ. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says this. He says, quote, We see here how Satan brings together all the ungodly, who in other respects differ widely from each other to attack the truth of God, so that the Pharisees are not displeased to have their own doctrine attacked in the person of Christ. You hear what Calvin is saying here. He was saying that the ungodly, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are committed to the same purpose. We have to get rid of Jesus. And so he was, Calvin was saying that the Pharisees are okay with the Sadducees attacking their doctrine. And remember, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And they were okay with the Sadducees attacking the resurrection if it was to score points against Jesus. I remember many years ago, I was watching CNN. And I was watching um, this program uh, where John MacArthur was uh, being interviewed. You remember Larry King? Some of you may remember the late Larry King. And Larry King had John MacArthur on, but he also had representatives of different religions also there. He had a Buddhist there. He had, I, I don't even remember the various different groups. But the interesting thing about that hour-long program was that even though they may have all disagreed with each other at various points, they were all in agreement that John MacArthur was wrong. It was very interesting to watch that they would all together gang up on John MacArthur, the Buddhist and the Shintoist and the Western secularist, and they were all certain that MacArthur was wrong. And we see that in this situation, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, though they disagreed with each other at various points, nevertheless, they were united in getting rid of Christ. And this is true today. This is why so many groups who otherwise are in opposition to each other share a common hatred of Christianity in Western society. I mean, why is it that feminists are okay with the homosexual and transgender issue when it comes to women's sports? You ever think about that? If you were a feminist, why is it that you're okay with a biological boy competing? Well, it's because they both hate Christianity. That's the reason. They want to undermine the Christian worldview, and they're okay with them uh, even disagreeing with themselves on particular issues, so long as we get rid of a Christian underpinning in our own culture here. That's what is going on when you read your newspaper and you're wondering, why does this group allow this group to get their way on this issue? 
<clears throat> well, what is the controversy here? Well, look at verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, the Sadducees are bringing up something that was in the Bible. It's what is known as the Leveret Law, the Leveret Law. The Leveret Law was, was implemented by Moses, God through Moses, so that to teach the Israelites an important point, and that is that through faith in God, you would have an eternal inheritance. So what the Leveret Law sought to do was that when a man and a woman came together as husband and wife, if the man should tragically die before the couple was able to have a, a male child or to have children, that the man's name would not be blotted out. Remember that the land served as a typological inheritance for the people of God, symbolizing their inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember that the law of God is like training wheels for young children learning how to ride a bike. So God would use these laws to teach the, the people of God before the time of Christ that there was coming a, a new age, a new heavens, a new earth that they would inherit. And so that if a couple did not have children and the man died, then that the man's brother would take up the role of husband for his brother in order to produce offspring, not for himself, but for his brother. That his brother's name would not be blotted out under earth. Okay? So the Sadducees think, okay, we can get Jesus on this question of the resurrection with this one. And so they probably invent a scenario. We don't know whether this was an actual case, or, but it was probably a hypothetical. Let's take it as a hypothetical. And they say, there was this man, and he married a woman, and he dies, and they have no children. And so the next oldest brother marries her, and they have no children, and he dies, and then the third, and the fourth, and so on. And you have all these brothers who have married this woman. Well, whose husband... is going to be married to her in the resurrection. Which of the brothers is going to be the husband? That's the question. They're hoping here to try and undermine, remember here, the doctrine of the resurrection. They're trying to, they are asking this question not for information's sake. They're asking this question to try and score points that, that there is no resurrection. Does everybody see that? Okay, that's the purpose of this question. They are trying to show that the resurrection cannot possibly uh, exist. Now, they wanted to mock and ridicule and bring into disrepute the doctrine of the resurrection. This goes on today as well. I even saw on social media just this week a so-called pastor saying that one can still celebrate resurrection while denying the bodily resurrection. That was posted this week. Um, so you see that this issue is not just something 2,000 years ago. There, there are earnest people trying to tell you that you can celebrate resurrection, not the resurrection, just resurrection. And be, listen, listen to, you know, if you get a chance to 
a liberal minister. They'll, they'll take that definitive article out. Uh, they'll just say, we're here to celebrate resurrection this morning. That's happening in a lot of churches today. We're here to celebrate resurrection. And they do this intentionally because they want the people who believe in the bodily resurrection to think that the minister believes just like they do. But at the same time, he, he's denying the bodily resurrection. And this, so this goes on today uh, as well. The, the Sadducees were trying to bring this doctrine of the resurrection into disrepute. So they conjure up probably this ridiculous scenario so that Jesus would be humiliated in front of the crowds. So that's the, that, that's the first point right there. Now, let's go to Jesus' answer here in two parts. The first part is in verse 29 and verse 30, and the second will be in verse 31 and 32. So look at verse 29 in the scriptures here. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Notice there, there is a misunderstanding in two ways. Number one, they don't understand what the Bible teaches, that the Bible does teach, in fact, the resurrection of the dead. And they also do not understand the power of God. Is, is um, nothing impossible for God? The question is raised. No, God can do all things according to his holy will. So there, there is ignorance here, Jesus is saying, on two counts. They are ignorant of the scriptures, and they're ignorant of God's resurrection. This is a common thing today as well. Often, people who are in opposition to orthodox doctrine in the church do so because they really don't understand the scriptures, and they do not understand the power of God. There are a lot of smart people who study religion, but that doesn't mean that they know God. That doesn't mean that they have an understanding, a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is that they fail to understand really the teaching of the scriptures. This is why somebody with a very modest education who has the spirit of God can understand far more clearly what the Bible is teaching than somebody who has a PhD from Vanderbilt University in religion who does not have the spirit of God. And, and so the, the, remember what Paul said about his own people. He said that when the scriptures are read, he said, speaking of his fellow Jews, a veil covers their face. So that when the scriptures are read in the synagogue each Sabbath day, Paul said, it's, it, there's a blindness over them because the Spirit of God has not taken away that blindness in Jesus Christ. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the veil is removed and you begin to see clearly Christ in the Scriptures. You begin to see Christ in the Old Testament. This also is one of the reasons that so many people go astray. They, they, they think, well, it was not possible for David to anticipate Christ. Uh, in Psalm 22. That had to be a later writer of the psalm. You know, there's no way that Isaiah could speak the way he spoke in Isaiah chapter 53 and be the Isaiah that lived 700 years before the coming of Christ. That had to surely be something of a later redaction, they say. Well, it's because they don't see the scriptures. They, they are blinded uh, when the veil lies over their heart and, and they do not believe. So, it is important that 
uh, we have a right understanding, a high view of the Bible. Watch out, uh, young people. If you go to college and your professor is trying to undermine your view of the Scriptures, if they are trying to have develop within you a low view of the Scriptures, the, the Scriptures are just a matter of mere human composition. The Scriptures were put together... Uh, and you know, by various authors, and 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 uh, they are full of all kinds of compromise and error in it. Um, watch out! They're trying to put you on the slippery slope to unbelief. God speaks inerrantly and infallibly through His Word, so that the Scriptures are the very Word of God in the words of God. Jesus said that the Scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures can be counted on. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Every word comes forth. The whole of scripture is God breathed, we are told. That's where we get uh, the meaning for inspiration. The spirit has breathed um, himself into the authors as they wrote, uh, that they wrote, uh, yes, as human authors, but as human authors inspired by the Spirit of God to write what they write. You, Jesus said, you do not understand the Scriptures. Well, one of the things, if you do not know Jesus Christ, one of the things you need to do is you need to pray that God would help you to understand the Bible. How do I know what to believe in religion, you say? Well, read the Bible. Study the Bible. And as you read the Bible, pray that God would help you to understand. You remember? You remember the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch? And what's the eunuch doing? He's reading Isaiah. He's reading the Bible. But he needed help, didn't he, to understand. And so one of the apostles explained to him that this man was speaking not of himself, but of Christ, Jesus. So you need to have an understanding of, of the Bible. Listen, you're not going to come close to God if, if you're away from the Word. You're not going to draw near to God. Now you say, well, pastor, there were many centuries where you know, they didn't have the Bible at home. I agree. But they had church every day, too in their communities. I mean, we can do that if you'd like. <laughs> I want to go back to the days of Calvin. Okay. They had pre-dawn worship services every day. <laughs> you know, come on. Um, yes, it's true that there were many centuries where believers didn't necessarily have a copy of the Bible in their own home. Uh, but there was a place that they went on a very regular basis to hear the Word of God, to hear it read and hear it taught. And, and uh, ignorance of the Scriptures will lead you away from God. Now, notice here in verse 29, he says, you are mistaken not understanding the Scriptures, he says, but also what? Nor the power of God. What does is, what is Paul tell us in Romans chapter 1? He says that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Sadducees are devoid of understanding the gospel, the power of God. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in salvation. In that he has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
This was all anticipated, though, even in the Old Testament, so that the Sadducees should have known that the God who parts the Red Sea, that the God who can put Ezekiel's dry bones together and give them sinew and flesh and the spirit within them, that the God who can stop the Jordan River, that the God who does all of these miracles of Elijah and others, that this is the same God who can raise the dead. It was clear in the Old Testament. It was absolutely clear. But they did not have eyes to see nor a heart to believe in the power of God. But it was always, always there. The problem was not with the perspicuity of the scriptures. That is, the problem is not that the scriptures are insufficiently clear. The problem is the Sadducees. This problem is the Sadducees' own heart. That is still true today. Many times the reason people don't believe in the Bible is because of their sin. And I've quoted this a thousand times in this church, but Spurgeon says, show me a man who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and follow that man home, and I'll show you why he doesn't believe the Bible. Because it's, it's rooted in something in his own life. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. The Sadducees were lovers of money. They were lovers of pleasure. They were lovers of power. They were lovers of respectful greetings in the marketplace. That's the problem with the Sadducees. They were lovers of themselves. They did not have the love of God within them. They did not know God. And they were not known by God. And so one of the ways they can, they can get this off their conscience is by denying the resurrection. So Jesus here, he is saying, you are ignorant with regard to the scriptures. You are ignorant with regard to the resurrection power of God. Now they are ignorant with regard to the scriptures in one sense, in that in the resurrection, Jesus says, no one marries or is given in marriage. Look at verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So that we, Jesus here is teaching that in this life, in this world, men marry ordinarily. Women are given in marriage here. Um, and, and there's a need for that because there is, especially in this world, there is death now. There's a need uh, for propagation. But in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, in eternity, uh, we shall be as angels. Now that was another slap in the Sadducees' face. Did you catch that? Because the, the Sadducees deny angelic beings. And here Jesus is he's jibing back at them and saying, oh yes, well, you're ignorant of the scriptures, you're ignorant of the power of God, and yes, oh, by the way, in the resurrection, we will be like angels. What? <laughs> um, so he, he's, he's routing the, the views of the Sadducees all in a couple of sentences. What do, what do we take of this? This sometimes can be maybe a hard subject to think that, that there's no marriage or giving in marriage in eternity. What Christ here, I think, is showing us, though, is uh, that the good is moving towards the, a greater. Uh, that the blessings of marriage, the blessings of the family, yeah, indeed, are temporary. 
but they give way to a greater reality in the kingdom of God. And there they shall endure in, in a glory that lasts forever. Marriage and family are good gifts. They are created by God. They're used in the providence of God to advance the kingdom of God in this world, to leave a holy seed, as our confession states. But yet it is to lead us to a greater glory that is ahead. Now, what I want to do with our remaining time is I want to now focus on the last two verses here uh, with regard to Jesus' response at the resurrection here. So again, look at verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now here again, reemphasizing what I made earlier as a point, that notice here Jesus is making it clear that the doctrine of the resurrection is in the Old Testament scriptures. Remember that in that day, they would have had Genesis through Malachi as their scriptures. The canon had not yet been completed at the time that this incident took place. But notice here, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, Jesus asked the Sadducees, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? God has spoken to us about the resurrection in the Old Testament. And then he quotes here an example. He could have quoted several. But here's the one that he interestingly draws from. And it's from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. It's from that passage where Moses is speaking with God at the burning bush. You remember that story, boys and girls, young children? You remember when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush? Moses sees the bush is burning and yet the bush is not consumed. And he says, man, I've got to see this sight. What is going on here? And he draws close and God says, Moses, here I am. Moses, take off your shoes for the ground which you are standing is holy. And Moses is in the presence of God. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, um, God declares to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And it's interesting as you look at the, um, in the language in the Hebrew, it is not in the past tense. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He puts it in the present tense. I am their God. And, and Jesus uses this uh, point to support the doctrine of the resurrection. Meaning this, that since God is the God of the living, he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Abraham, and we are to understand and conclude from that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. And they are awaiting the glorious resurrection. That, the God, that these men, though dead, yet live, to put it in the words of Christ. Though these men have died, yet their soul has gone to be with the Lord. They are in the presence of God. Why? They are awaiting the resurrection from the dead. They are awaiting the final conclusion, the consummation of what has been promised to them. Remember, this was taught to Abraham. And Abraham understood this lesson at Mount Moriah when he took Jacob to sacrifice him. What was the point of that? Why did God make Abraham go through that whole thing? 
only to rescue Isaac at the last moment. He, it was because he wanted to test Abraham to see, does Abraham believe in what? The resurrection. What was Abraham thinking as he was about to plunge the dagger into his son's chest? Somehow God will yet still fulfill his promise to, to me about my son. Somehow God will yet bring this child back to life. The point of Mount Moriah was to teach the doctrine of the resurrection. And at the last minute, God intervenes and he says, Abraham, stop, for now I know that you trust me. And Abraham, there's something else I want you to learn. While I'm teaching you about the resurrection, you're not the one who's going to provide the sacrifice. I'm going to provide the sacrifice. That ram that was caught in the thicket was not the ultimate point. That ram whose horns were caught in the thicket was another theological point. God provided that ram for Abraham. One day that ram would be replaced by Jesus himself. God would provide the sacrifice by sending his own son, the son of God, to become a real human being by the power of the Spirit of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born, with, born by her, yet without sin. He would be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he would be the sacrifice and God would raise him up on the third day. Interestingly, notice how Jesus always says, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus could have gone to other texts. He could have gone to Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11 that we sang. He could have gone to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. There are passages in Job. He could have gone to Job 14, 14, or Job 19, verse 25 through 27. There are a number of places that teach the doctrine of the resurrection. You know, I mentioned um, Mary and Martha, and, and she said, Lord, I know that my brother will live at the last day. I know my brother will be raised up on the last day. She had a confidence in the resurrection. But Jesus said, there's something I want you to hear, though. I'm the resurrection. So that before he raises Lazarus from the tomb, by the way, that's not a, that was not a resurrection that you and I will experience, by the way. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but that was not a resurrection. Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again later. A resurrection means you are raised unto eternal life. You are raised as Christ was raised, to never die again. But in order to show that he is the resurrection who can do the latter, he would do the former. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live. 
Even if he dies, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said, do you believe this? What, are, what should we make by way of, of, of applications by way of the resurrection here? Well, first of all, we need to make the application that the redemption of Jesus Christ applies to the whole person. Jesus' salvation applies to the whole you as you were created. By that, I mean this. The resurrection of Christ brings salvation to your soul and to your body. Now, those of you who have been with me for many years, you know I harbor this point, and that is that I think too often in evangelicalism, we are emphasizing the salvation of the soul, and we are not emphasizing also the salvation of the body. And you've heard me say I've gone to too many funerals where there is a coffin oftentimes in the room and there is no mention of the resurrection. How can this be? The Bible teaches that the body is sown like a seed. First, you can read it in 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible teaches that our body in death still belongs to Jesus. And Jesus has a purpose for your body in that it is sown into the ground as a seed for what purpose? To bring forth the new body at Jesus' return. Many of you are about to do your spring planting in your gardens. You're going to put seeds in the ground. You are not hoping for big seeds. You are not hoping for just a seed to come up. You are hoping for what? You are hoping for fruit. You are hoping that in planting this and with water and God's blessing and the sun and rest, that you will have vegetables and fruit to eat this summer. Paul is saying in the same way, our body, when we go to the cemetery and we put one of our members from our church in the ground, we are doing so testifying to the world that this person is going to be brought forth again from this grave. This body still belongs to Jesus, and he's going to raise it up, but it's not going to be exactly the same. It will still be you, but it'll be, if I can put it this way, the new real you, the, the new heavens and new earth you. The body will know something of the consummated glory of Christ. See, Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, but he was raised with a glorified body. I mean, you do realize that, right? He's coming in and out of rooms that are locked. <laughs> right? There's something different going on here now. Now, he's still eating a fish. So we know there's a continuity with what we know presently as our body, but there's a discontinuity as well. <laughs> you know, he's, he's walking with the men on the road to Emmaus, and then suddenly he's gone. There's something mysterious, but something real about the future glorified body. But it will really be your body. It will really be you. 
That means also by way of application, we need to honor God with our bodies in this present life. Our bodies belong to the Lord. They're not to be used for immorality. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a living stone that that you will be fitted together with all the other bodies of, of believers through the ages and we will form this glorious new heavens and new earth temple in which God in all his glory will dwell among us. And that means we have to live a life out of the resurrection power that we have been given. And that means we have to say no to sin. Our former way of living has to be put off. We can't be giving ourselves to sexual immorality that is so prevalent in our day. We have to be repenting of that. We have to say, my body belongs to the Lord now. And this body, though it is going to be sown in dishonor, it's going to be raised in glory one day. Therefore, be careful how you use your body. Young people, don't put yourself in a situation where your body is going to do something sinful. Your body is intended for the Lord. It also means that we should avoid a platonic view of the body. What do I mean by that? Plato said that, the, that reality is in the form of the realms. There's a sense that this present life is not all that real. Um, some, such as the Gnostics, even said that the body was evil. It's just, I, I, I don't like it. I, you sometimes see it in hymns where it speaks of the body as a prison of the soul. Forget that. Your body's not a prison for the soul. Your body uh, is, has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Now, I, as I started off with the opening illustration, our culture is obsessed, in some sense, with the body. But I think this is an, uh, an opportunity for uh, uh, apologetics and evangelism. That, yes, the body is important. Uh, and it's far more important than the world understands it. The world actually has a very low view of the body compared 